You're listening to the Fellowship Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Fellowship Baptist Church is located in Clark Lake, Michigan. Today's message is part of our Adult Sunday School series. Adult Sunday School is taught by a variety of different men in our church. Now let's prepare our hearts as our Sunday School teacher brings forth God's truths from His Word today. verse we can all quote and already know, but it's going to be the opening verse for our lesson today. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. As I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So, we're going to continue on our topic of talking about wine in the Bible today. And the question I really want us to ask ourselves as we're thinking about this and as we're considering all these different things is. Is this holy and acceptable unto God? That is the filter in which we should run everything we do in life through, right? Is this holy? Is it acceptable unto God? That goes with anything that we do. Alcohol is no exception. So is it holy and acceptable unto God to drink alcohol? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again, Lord, for us, the opportunity to be able to come into your house. Again, Father, thank you for the Believers that are here, Lord, that have gathered together, I pray that you'll be with everybody that is at home sick right now, Father, that you would just touch their bodies. We know it is that time of year, Lord, with the, especially with the drastic changes in temperature where a lot of people get sick. I just pray that you'll touch them, heal them, give them their strength back, Lord. Pray for those couple of people whose water went out, Lord. I just, that can be, uh, that can be, Lord, we're used to those luxuries here in America, and having our water go out can be a big deal. So I pray that you'll help them to get that resolved quickly and get that figured out. Just be with the lesson today and this whole day, Lord, that you will be honored, glorified, and lifted up through it. We just ask this in your holy, precious name. Amen. All right, so last week, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> last week we looked at several different misconceptions in the Bible about wine. First, we looked at the word wine and how it can refer to either alcoholic or non-alcoholic wine, according to the language. Okay, this is why we talked about it was so important to understand the meaning of the word wine by the context that surrounds the word wine in the Bible. If the context is not always clear, we must compare Scripture to Scripture to try to understand the teachings on both alcoholic and non-alcoholic wine as far as God's word goes. Second, we looked at the misconception concerning preservation of grape juice in ancient times. Many claim and believe that there was no way to preserve grape juice, therefore the only kind of grape juice could have been alcoholic. We saw that this belief is just simply not based in historical, in historical facts. It's just not true. Poets, agriculturists, from ancient time, historians from ancient times, they all describe different processes to preserve grape juice. As I was reading more this week, I was reading deeper into this preservation thing because, guys, this, is, this, this issue, man, you can just study forever and ever and ever and ever and ever on this. 
So there is, there is even way more methods than I even knew for preserving grape juice, as well as it was very popular and common to not only preserve the grape juice, but to preserve the grapes themselves before they were pressed. So actually preserve the grapes in their clusters. They had different ways and methods, and in these agricultural manuals, it's described the best way to preserve these different grapes. And so then they said that also, they, so when they wanted fresh grape juice, they would just take these preserved grapes up and they would squeeze them right into a cup to give you perfectly fresh, delicious grape juice. And um, actually, Genesis 40.11, I believe, attests to this. In Genesis 40.11, this is where the butler is telling Joseph about his dream in his prison, okay? And this is what he says. And Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and gave the cup unto Pharaoh's hand. So clearly, he took the grapes and pressed them right from the grapes into Pharaoh's cup and then gave him that cup of fresh grape juice to drink. So that was also another method that they used is they would actually preserve the fruit itself. Very interesting. Now, some of these writers also include descriptions on how to preserve fermented grape juice as well. It's not just grape juice. They also give different ways to preserve fermented, fermented grape juice. So as we know, both existed. It was not extensively grape juice, and it was not extensively fermented grape juice. As you read through these men's descriptions on how to preserve both fresh grape juice and fermented grape juice, the process of preserving fermented grape juice was much more strenuous and involved than the process of preserving fresh grape juice. It was so interesting. If not prepared, stored, and maintained correctly, the alcoholic wine would easily and quickly turn moldy and sour. Why was that? The reason it would turn sour, as I'm sure some of us know, is that wine, when it's even exposed to a little bit of oxygen over time, will turn to what? It will turn to vinegar. Obviously, the less oxygen, the slower it turns, the more oxygen, the quicker it turns. So they have different methods on how to seal fermented grape juice as well to keep as much oxygen out of it as possible so it wouldn't turn quickly into vinegar. The first fermentation process is the sugar in the juice being transformed into alcohol. The second fermentation process is the alcohol being transformed into acetic acid, and that acetic acid is what vinegar is. The strong smell and taste that you get from vinegar is from the acetic acid. The typical household vinegar today has a percentage of about 5 to 15% of this acetic acid. It what gives it its really strong taste and smell. <clears throat> Only 5 to 15% in the normal household vinegar today, and the Rex is pretty much water with a couple of other little other things in there. So, it was difficult for the ancients to keep the fermented wine in its fermented state without it transforming into its second fermented state, which was vinegar. So the process of trying to keep fermented juice in that, in that, in that middle stage was very difficult to try to keep it preserved in that middle stage because it often turned sour. So there's all kinds of methods on how to keep that from turning into vinegar as well. Last week, we ended off with looking at what was drank at the Last Supper. Today, we're going to start off with what... Today, we're going to start off with the wedding in Cana where Jesus turned the water into wine. And obviously, everybody that is moderationalist, that believe you can drink alcohol in moderation, say, yes, 100%, Jesus turned the water into alcoholic wine here, absolutely. So, we're going to go ahead and we're going to read through this because I want us to be able to read through the context and get it. So, turn to John chapter 2.
And it starts right in verse 1, John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verse 1, and the story, we'll read through verse 11. Verse 1. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. And his mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he do unto you, whatsoever he saith, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. We're going to, learn, we're going to see how much that actually was. Two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, he knew not whence it was. But the servants which drew, the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginnings of miracle did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and all the disciples believed on him. <clears throat> So here in John chapter 2, John describes the first miracle of Jesus' earthly minister, of Jesus' earthly ministry. Mary and disciples and Jesus were invited to a wedding in Cana, and the host of the wedding ran out of wine. What a dilemma. Per his mother's request, Jesus took the six large water pots and miraculously transformed these six water pots into wine. Since we have established that the word wine in the Bible simply refers to the juice of grapes, the question is, did Jesus turn this into alcoholic wine or grape juice? Obviously, that's the big question. First, we need to look at the nature of Christ and whether or not it supports the position of, alcohol, of the fact that he turned it into alcoholic wine or non-alcoholic wine. So, it is derogatory to the character of Christ and the teachings of the Bible to suppose that he exerted his miraculous power to produce the same kind of wine that Proverbs says is a mocker. Proverbs also says it bites like a serpent. It says it stings like an adder. Deuteronomy says it is like the poison of dragons and the cruel venom of asps. This is how the Bible describes alcohol. To say that Christ turned the water into alcoholic wine, which the Bible describes in such a, a, a graphic way, is just wrong. Do we really want to assume that our Holy Savior made alcoholic drinks for the guest when he himself, through the inspired writers, gave such grave warnings concerning its destructiveness? Even God went as far as to say in Proverbs 23, 31, Look not upon the wine when it is red. When it giveth its color in the cup, it moveth itself aright. Now, the fermentation process creates carbon dioxide inside of the wine, which is why we see all of those bubbles from the carbon dioxide in the wine. So when you're looking at wine and seeing all those bubbles, it gives the illusion that the wine is moving. That's why Solomon said this here. It gives the illusion that the wine is moving. He said, don't even look at it when it moveth itself in the cup. So obviously, he's talking about fermented wine there. 
In my, in my personal opinion, if this was the only portion of Scripture that talked out against the use of wine in the whole Bible, and obviously there's tons of them, but if this was the only one, this is so, I mean, this is so just clear. Look not thou at the wine when it is red, when it giveth its color, when it moveth in the cup. If this was the only verse in all of Scripture, that would be plenty for us to say, listen, this sounds like something God would not approve of. But obviously the Scripture gives us way more than this. As far as saying that God created alcoholic wine for the guests to drink is nothing short of what I believe is blasphemous. Jesus Christ could never have made alcoholic wine and had it be in line with his character and holiness. Since every creation of God is perfect and good, as he clearly stated on each day after creation, in order for him to create something good, there's no way he could have created it in its already degraded and fermented state, such as wine. That is not something good. That's something that is already spoiled and gone bad. The nature of God's perfect creation and miracle supports the position that this wine was grape juice. God does not, God does not already, does God not already produce this exact same grape juice every single year in all the vine through the water that naturally comes up through the ground? He was just simply recreating the process that he already naturally does every single year in all the grapes around the whole world. It was a miracle for the, for the people that were there to see it, but not a miracle for him. He does, it, he, he does it all the time. Creating something fermented would have been a break from his already miraculous miracle of transforming water into grape juice that he does every year. Creating fermented wine would have been uncharacteristically different than any of his other creations or miracles. A break from his character. The Bible says nothing about Jesus' character to make things old. Every time the Bible talks about what Jesus makes, it talks about him making something new. That is his character. His character is to take old things, old, wretched things, such as you and I before salvation, and to make us new. That is the character of Christ. What about verse 6 in that passage of Scripture? The verse 6 says, And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Okay, so one firkin is about 36 liters. Jesus therefore made between 432 and 648 liters of wine. In its conversion, this would come out to be about 114 to 171 gallons of wine. It's kind of a little bit easier for me to picture gallons than it is for me to picture liters. So I, I just transformed, I just converted that over. So 114 to 171 gallons of wine. Guys, that's a, that is a lot of wine. Oh my goodness. That is a ton of wine, okay? According to the ruler's speech in verse 10, the people at the wedding had already had plenty to drink, offering an average total of 142 more gallons of alcoholic wine to the people that had already, as the Bible said, quoted from the Bible, well drunk. They had already well drunk. Adding 142 more gallons of alcoholic wine would have, would, have, would have encouraged, promoted, and without a doubt guaranteed everybody at the wedding's drunkenness. Clearly, drunkenness is in complete total violation of Scripture, and Christ never would have created something that could have potentially caused even one person, let alone an entire wedding party, to get drunk. Some have said that the reason that the governor called the wine that Jesus made good wine was because of its high alcohol content. 
<laughs> because of its high alcoholic content compared to that which they were already drinking. First of all, that would only prove that the wine that Jesus made would have thrown everybody into a crazed, drunken state. Second, obviously they didn't have the process of, process of distillation back in the Bible days. So the highest alcohol content that could have been achieved naturally would have been between 13 and 15%. But by that point, if you do your research on this, by that point, by the time the, alcoholic, the, al by the, time the alcohol naturally ferments to get up to um, 15% of alcohol, that's when it's starting to go into its second fermentation process. So by the time it gets up to that 13, 14%, it's already tasting really disgusting because it's already started transforming into vinegar. So there's no way that if it was high alcoholic content wine that the, that, that the guy would have been like, this is good wine. It would have been like, wow, this stuff is disgusting, okay? Because it's starting to taste like vinegar. There's no way we can accept the suggestion that Jesus turned water into alcoholic wine. The holy nature of Christ, the nature of his creation, and the description of the wine and the amount of wine that he created all support the fact that this was sweet, unfermented, unintoxicating, good wine or grape juice. All right, so let's look at what Paul said to the de deacons as far as drinking much wine. What Paul said to deacons as far as drinking much wine. Um, go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. First Timothy 3, 8. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre. In this verse, Paul is listing the qualifications for a deacon. Just a few verses prior, in verse 2 and 3, he lists the qualifications for a pastor. So go to verse 2. We're going to read 2 and 3. A bishop must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, no greedy, a filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetousness. Not covetous. <clears throat> Paul was obviously not trying to tell them not to drink grape juice since it was not a sin to drink grape juice and it was the second most common drink next to water in those days. He was not trying to tell them not to drink grape juice. The wine Paul was referring to here in this portion of scripture was alcoholic. Why did Paul say a bishop is not to be given to wine and deacons are not to be given to much wine? So was Paul saying that bishops can drink a little bit of wine, or bishops can't drink any wine, but then deacons can in turn drink a little bit of wine? That doesn't make sense. Of course not. <clears throat> That's not how God works. God doesn't have one set of biblical standards for this group of Christians, and then another set of biblical standards for this group of Christians. God doesn't, have, God doesn't have two sets of standards for people. The point of the portion... The point of this portion of Scripture is for Paul to say, listen, no man can take the position of leadership unless he is upholding the standards that God has given to all of us. So those standards are given to all of us, but God said, listen, these men cannot be placed in these leadership positions as a bishop or as a deacon unless they are upholding these standards that God has already given to every single one of us, all of us. So people that use this verse to justify drinking in moderation also have to agree that it is okay for pastors to drink in moderation. And they do say that because the, they point out that Paul said 
that bishops are not to be given to wine, which must mean addicted. That's what they say. It must, when they say given to wine, they must, they must mean de- our pastors are not supposed to be addicted to wine. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, in verse 3, when it says that, when Paul says bishops are not to be given to wine, the word, the word given translated from the Greek is perinos, and it literally means beside or alongside. It means beside or alongside. We might say it this way. Pastors are not to be keeping company with wine. What Paul was saying was not only can pastors not drink wine, but they are to avoid being around wine as well. Not only not drink it, but don't keep company. Don't go places where, don't, don't go places where wine is everywhere. Past, it, is not, it is not a pastor's, in God's eyes, pastors should not be going and hanging out at the bar and talking, talking to people that are drinking a bunch of alcohol there, right? Okay? That's not, just, just, just to go out, just to go to the bar and hang out, that's like, oh, I'm not drinking nothing, but I'm just hanging out here. You know, don't, 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 don't go around the wine. Don't keep company with it. So why would Paul say pastors shouldn't be alongside, shouldn't be beside or alongside wine, but deacons are free to drink in moderation? <clears throat> so when deacons have, so you know, as an example, let's say, so God, if this was what God was saying was, listen, pastors can't drink any wine, but deacons can drink a little wine. It would be like, you know, deacons can, when they have other people over to their, over to their house, they're like, well, yeah, let's break out the wine glass and I'll enjoy, uh, I'll enjoy a cup of wine. But if they want to invite the pastor over, they got to hide that wine down in the basement. <laughs> I mean, duh, that doesn't make any sense. If you got to hide something from the pastor, it's something you shouldn't be doing in the first place. That's all, that's all I got to say. That's not, that's not what Paul was saying. Hide the wine from the pastor, but when everyone else comes around, everyone enjoy a glass. So why did Paul say that deacons are not to be given to much wine? How do we resolve this? Well, I believe it can be compared to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 4. This verse is likened unto unbelievers and how they view us after we get saved. So how do unbelievers view, how unbelievers view us after we get saved? And it says this, Wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. They think it's strange that you run with them, not to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. What Peter is saying here is once you are saved, the unsaved finds it strange that you don't indulge in the same rioting as they do, and therefore they make fun of you and they speak evil of you. I mean, that's, we know that to be true. That's what they do. They don't understand. Now, just because Peter said that we don't get involved to the same excess of riot doesn't mean that once we get saved, we can get involved in minor rioting. Okay, just because he used the word excess of riot, you don't get involved in the same excess of riot. You're not doing all the things that the world is doing. And people start saying, well, that's weird. What's wrong with you? They start speaking evil of you. Doesn't mean that, you know, he wasn't saying just because because he used the word excess. He wasn't saying that, listen, it's okay to be involved in a little bit of rioting as long as you're not being involved in excess of rioting. No, any rioting would be sinful, right? I mean, any, any part of us that is still like the world is sinful. Any part of us that is doing what the world is doing is sinful. When it comes to the word... When it comes to the wording of much wine in this text, we must understand that even though the King James Version is the inspired, preserved word of God, it was still translated. I believe this is important to understand. It was still translated from a different language in which sentences and words sometimes are structured a little differently than we would structure them today. 
We saw this principle, this is even, I mean, this principle is even true with the English language itself. I mean, we saw this last week on the different translation of wine back when the King James Version was translated and what, what wine went back then in the English language and what wine means today. They're both completely different things. They both mean completely different things. So it doesn't take away from the inspiration of God's word. It doesn't take away from the preservation of God's word. And it doesn't take away from the authority of God's word. What it does is it requires us to do a little bit more studying, to show ourselves approved. That's what the Bible tells us to do. Study it to show yourself approved. I believe another example of the same structuring of a sentence can be found in Ecclesiastes 7.17. And Ecclesiastes 7.17 says this, Be not overmuch wicked, neither be thou foolish. Be not overmuch wicked, neither be thou foolish. Solomon says here, be not much wicked. Now, does that mean that it's okay for us to be a little wicked? It doesn't? Then why did he say much wicked? Why did he just say, be thou not wicked? Or be not wicked? Why did he say much wicked? I mean, if we can't be a little wicked, why would he say much? It's the same structuring of a sentence here as what um, Paul said when he said much wine. Okay, just because, just because they use the word much doesn't, mean, doesn't automatically mean that a little is okay. Okay, it's just a different structuring of a sentence. Some people refer to it as more of a loose term to say something's not right. It is poor reasoning to conclude from these verses that deacons can drink little wine as long as it's not too much. Even a little of an evil thing is still evil. A little wickedness is still wicked. A little rioting is still rioting and still evil. A little bit of acting like the world is still acting like the world, which goes against Scripture. All right, so let's look at, the next one we're going to look at here is 1 Timothy 5.23. You can turn there if you want. You don't have to. 1 Timothy 5.23. Just a few pages over. I guess you can turn there. <laughs> 1 Timothy 5.23 says this. Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. Use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thy often infirmities. Was Paul telling Timothy to stop drinking water completely in this verse? Does anybody know? Was Paul telling Timothy to stop drinking water in this verse? Because he said, drink no longer water, but a little wine for thy stomach's sake. Well, let's look at this. This is proven, or Paul was not telling Timothy to stop drinking water completely. He was telling him to use a little wine with his water. This is proven by the words, little wine. Now, could, if Paul was really telling Timothy to stop, to stop drinking water completely, because he said, Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake. Do you think that Timothy could have stayed hydrated enough to survive off of a little bit of wine? Could he have stayed hydrated enough to survive? Absolutely not. Of course he couldn't. Duh. He can't stay hydrated enough to survive off a little bit of wine. We have to have water to live. Why would Paul tell him, stop drinking water, but just drink a little bit of wine? He would die. Obviously, he can't stop drinking water. So what was, so what was Paul actually saying here? What Paul was saying was stop drinking water alone, stop drinking water alone, but use a little wine as well for your stomach's sake and often infirmities. 
Now, was this alcoholic wine or non-alcoholic wine? I believe that Paul was suggesting that Timothy use a little bit of fermented wine with his water for his stomach's sake and often infirmities. At first, I wasn't convinced that this was the case, but through many different, I really looked into this and I said, okay, could Paul have been, was Paul recommending to use a little bit of fermented grape juice with his water, or was he talking about grape juice? So I started looking into all the different properties of grape juice and how and what they can be used for. And is there anything whatsoever in grape juice that can be used when you have an upset stomach or any, any, any problems with the stomach? Is there anything in grape juice that you can use when having problems with stomach? And through all this research that I did, everybody said, listen, if you're having problems with your stomach, you want to stay away from grape juice because it's so acidic and it will create your, it will cause your stomach to become inflamed and make you feel even more sick than you already were. So at first I was like, I don't know if that's really, I mean, because they use the same word there as they do everywhere else. It could either mean wine, it could mean alcoholic wine or grape juice. So what one was it? So after looking into all the different things of grape juice, you know, it's clear, obviously they didn't have science, they didn't have the science back then that we do today, but with the science that we have today, it's clear that there is nothing inside of grape juice that if you were having stomach problems would help you feel better. Nothing inside of it, okay? I read some people that said, yes, there is stuff inside of grape juice that will help you have stomach problems, but that will help you with stomach problems. But I could not find any research, and if you know of some, come tell me, okay? If you know of, if you're having stomach problems and you drink grape juice, now, there was a lot of studies that I read that said people are saying that if you're having stomach problems that you should drink grape juice, but it is, it is, it is not true. That is not what it is. They, they used it as an example said that like this. They were like, listen, if 100 people are feeling sick and every single one of, and every single one of them take a glass of grape juice and then 20 of that 100 people start feeling better, those 20 people are going to swear that that grape juice is the reason that they started feeling better. You know, because that's just the way we are. They're convinced, even if it was the grape juice or not. But they said, with the properties of grape juice, what's it? There's nothing that can help a stomach feel better. So, on that premise, I believe that, that what, that what um, Paul was recommending to Timothy here was a little bit of fermented grape juice, and I will explain why. It goes without saying that Paul in this portion of Scripture was telling Timothy to use a little wine as a medicine for sick. No way, shape, or form was Paul recommending it for recreational or pleasurable purposes, obviously. Since Paul, since Paul specifically said, drink no more water but use a little wine, it, it indicates that he was speaking concerning mixing the wine with the water. It is common knowledge that alcohol kills bacteria, okay? People know that. It's common knowledge that alcohol is a bacteria killer. Many have said that the reason that Paul recommended to Timothy to use a little wine instead of just drinking water was the purpose of mixing the alcohol with the wine because the water in the Bible days was known for making people sick because of all the bacteria that was in it. Both Christians and contemporary people agree on this. People, it's not like people are fighting over whether the water in the Bible days was making people sick or not. This is just common knowledge. I mean, everybody agrees on the fact that there was a lot of bacteria in the water, so people were often getting sick from drinking the water. People that take the side of complete abstinence have used the fact that they mixed wine with water to say that almost everyone that drank alcohol, alcoholic wine was drinking it highly diluted with water to keep themselves from getting sick. 
because there was no good way to purify water. Therefore, they were using fermented wine strictly for medical purposes with a high dilution of water so that, therefore, it was almost impossible to get somebody, to get somebody drunk. That is, I, I've read that several times. I will say that I could not substantiate that, that, that claim that people made. I know that that was something that they used to try to purify water back then. I could not find how extensively it was used. I just know that it was used. I don't know if it was common for everybody. I mean, I read people that said, listen, it's common. It was common for everybody to use this. But I couldn't find as far as like any claims from um, ancient writings to back up that fact. So I can't say for sure that everybody used, dumped a little bit of wine in their water to purify the water. Although it would have, and some people did definitely do that. And it appears here that that's what Paul is telling Timothy to do because it seems like the water is making Timothy sick. So he said to avoid that or either to rule out the fact that the water is what's making you sick, mix a little bit of that alcohol in it to try to purify that water. We do not know, we do not know if they did have other, we do know that they did have other methods of purifying water and it seems Yeah, I don't know if I just, that doesn't make any sense. Anyhow, <laughs> anyhow, they did, have, they did have other means for purifying water. There's some writings that are called the Sanskrit medical writings, which date back 2,000 years before Christ, okay? These are, these are Egyptian writings. They date back 2,000 years before Christ, and they give different methods on how to purify the water. One of the methods was um, boiling, which we all know today. We all know that if you boil water, it's going to take out the bacteria in the water. So there was boiling over fire, heating of the water under the sun, dipping, I mean, this is all in writings 2,000 years before Christ. Heating the water under the sun, dipping a heated iron into the water, filtering it through gravel and sand, and the use of a stone that they called the Gomotica stone, as well as the use of a certain seed that I cannot pronounce the name of because it's so weird, but it's something like strychnos potatorum. Anyhow, I said, anyhow, I spoke strictos, I spoke stricto, strictos potatorum. <laughs> I spoke that into Google and it actually came up. So I must be kind of closer. Google's made for stupid people, which I know, <laughs> which I know it is. So, <laughs> so anyhow, I looked that up on Google and people are still using that seed today in India to purify their water. Believe it or not, that same seed is still used in India, used in India today to purify their water. So they crush that seed up and they put it in a glass and they start mixing it with a really dirty water. And what it does is it causes all the sediment in the water to fall to the bottom of the glass. And you can see all the sediment. There's like, a, there's like thick sediment in the bottom of the glass. And they use that to purify all the sediment, all the water. Now, even though it does purify all the sediment out of the water, what it doesn't purify is the bacteria. So even though it makes a, and that's how they said they often tested water back in those days was by the smell, by the taste, and by the look. That's all they had to test it. Obviously, they couldn't test for bacteria. As one historian stated, I mean, we, we, as one historian stated, we know that, I have to finish this point up real quick. As one historian stated, we know that boiling water is a very effective means, but all the other means that were used were not effective in, in taking out the bacterial water, which is what makes you sick. So he said boiling water was an effective method but you can imagine, this is what one guy said, you can imagine how cumbersome it would have been for each family to continually be boiling enough water to keep everyone in the family hydrated. 
Also, many trees would have, been, would have needed to been around for the common man to continually be gathering wood for the fuel to fuel, for the fuel for the fire that need, to fuel the fire to purify the water on a, on a constant basis. You can imagine how much how much wood an entire nation would have needed to continually be fueling those fires to purify all the water that they had. And they said, they said that even though this was an effective means and they knew it was an effective means, it wasn't a means that was used very often because in the Middle East, there's in the Middle East. And they said in order to get enough wood to fuel those fires all the time, there would have been enough, there would have been enough trees around to fuel those fires. And in the Middle East, is a, lot, a lot of it is desert. There's not, a, there's not plenteous trees everywhere. So this would have been a very difficult, as you can imagine, task to find enough wood to constantly be fueling these fires. I thought that was just an interesting point. All right, we are 10-2. And um, we're not going to make it to this last one, which I didn't know if we were or not. So I'm not sure if we're going to come back to this. Um, it's not going to be next week, because next week is the cantata and I will be in here in Sunday school for the morning service so or for the Sunday school service warming up so it won't be next week it'd be the week after that we'll come back to this so we'll see the Lord has but listen the whole point of this study is so that we can combat these different scriptures in our mind and whether you know because the whole world wants to tell us yes the Bible says that drinking alcohol lots of Christians want to tell us yes the Bible says drinking alcohol is okay so we want to be able to combat these misconceptions in our own mind and not only in our own minds but to other believers as they try to as they try to say, listen, the Bible speaks of alcohol. The Bible says you can drink alcohol. Well, no, there's a defense for every passage of Scripture. The Bible does not say that you can drink alcohol. It is sin. It is wrong. There's so many passages of Scripture that says that. And, and you know, we need to come to that belief and realization ourselves. And I would encourage every one of you to do a study into this. I've been so enlightened to the study that, that I've done. And I have um, a handful of books that I can recommend to you that I have read that have been very good. You just got to make sure, obviously, when you're not reading God's Word and you're reading books, that you're checking the facts and that you're making sure that it aligns with God's Word. Because some, some people, just to prove their point, will, will once in a while so throw something crazy in there. There's this one book I read the whole thing almost all the way through, and I was just like, wow, all that is on point. That is so good. And at the very end, he said something ridiculous. And I'm just like, what? Why would you say that? Man, what a bummer. So got to make sure that it aligns with God's word, that aligns with historical and grammatical facts, and you will be so enlightened. It's something that all of us need to understand and get into our hearts. All right, let's pray. You have been listening to the Fellowship Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this message was a blessing and encouragement to you. If you would like more messages, visit our website at fbcclarklake.org, where all of our messages can be downloaded for free. Also, you can subscribe to the Fellowship Baptist Church Sermon Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. All of our messages are available for free. If you want to keep up to date on what's going on at Fellowship, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, where you can see what's happening at Fellowship Baptist Church. If you'd like to visit us, Fellowship Baptist Church is located at 3200 Reed Road, Clark Lake, Michigan. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you back here again next time.